You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back. Welcome to the seventh episode of the Broadway Teachers Podcast. Hello, Gordon. Hey, Pam. This is a really, really special conversation today. Um, Billy Porter uh, is someone I have known since the very beginning of my career um, in theater. I knew him when I was an actor. I loved his work as an actor. And then when I uh, went into directing, thanks to Pam, uh, I um, cast him as Jesus in Jesus Christ Superstar at the Helen Hayes Performing Arts Center in Nyack, where he was sensational. I will never forget his performance and how it changed me as an artist. Uh, we have remained friends and of course, um, he has gone from strength to strength um, over the years. And uh, despite a bit of a roller coaster ride in the industry, he keeps coming out on top. And mm. I have to admire the fact that he has remained true to himself, true to his roots, that he is still engaged uh, with the community that he comes from and the community that he's a part of now. Um, and that he keeps challenging himself as an artist from Angels in America to Pose to Kinky Boots. Uh, this is a formidable human being and artist. So enjoy this conversation. And um, I look forward to uh, hearing what you have to say about it. So here's our conversation with Billy Porter. Uh, little warning, there's some explicit language, but everything he says is smart and thoughtful and really worth listening to. Enjoy. The following was recorded live at the Broadway Teachers Workshop an annual program that brings theater teachers together with the Broadway community for behind the scenes classes, workshops, intimate discussions, and Broadway shows in New York City and online. Learn more at www.broadwayteachinggroup.com. Now your future's so unclear now, and you sit there like a slob with what's left of your career now. You cannot get a
Welcome back, everybody. Oh, my goodness. Listening to that takes me back um, to Greece, where Billy created that insane arrangement. I want to, like, put on my plastic hair and come out <laughs> and sing back up for you. Please don't. <laughs> it was a crazy acid dream of a production of Greece, directed by the brilliant Jeff Calhoun, yeah. um, uh, that we were both in at different times. Um, and uh, guys, please welcome Billy Porter. There would be huge applause and standing and, and tears right now if we were in a room, but we're not in a room, we're in a TV set. Um, not even a TV set, I'm on a laptop. Billy, hi. The children are coming in the room. There's 64 people in the room, <laughs> 65, I see it coming up. They're gathering, they're gathering. Oh, kids. <laughs> 73, so, 79, 80. Wow, there's a lot of people in here. No, we're up to 467. Oh, that's fierce. Oh, we're more. No, it's going up. It's going up. Oh, wow. Um, just stop counting. 99. It's like, it's like Las stop Vegas. Counting. It's just a ticker. Um, <laughs> so, Billy, where are you? Where are we finding you? Uh, I am quarantining, uh, sheltering in place out on Long Island with my husband. Um, we've been out here since March and, um, I have to say it, uh, has been, um, really sans the terror. Um, you know, it's terrible what's going on in the world right now, but it really has allowed for me to have some space and reflect and, um, teach myself about self self care and, balance and boundaries, which is not something that I'm very good at. Um, so I'm learning about that right now. And it's really awesome um, having co connective time with my, my husband. You know, the last couple of years for me, it's just been like, I describe it like that, uh, the image of that Indiana Jones with the boulder behind him, <laughs> you know, and he's trying to outrun it. It's like, the boulder is filled with astonishing things. But if it runs over me, I still go splat. Yep. So, you know, it's been a really interesting, creative um, time for me. And I haven't stopped working. I actually, you know, one of the boundaries things I'm realizing is I don't always have to get on the plane and travel. I could do some shit on Zoom. Yep. <laughs> from my house. I think everyone knows what that feels like now. So it's not so weird. You know what I mean? Like we're going to be able to, I think coming out of whatever this is, I think everybody's going to find a different space in terms of how to take care of ourselves in the, in, in the middle of all of this fantasticness. Yes, absolutely. Can you, um, can we go back a little bit to yeah, Pittsburgh? Please. So you grew up in, uh, in Pittsburgh, yes? Yes. And um, what was your first creative moment? When, when did you first understand that you wanted to perform? Well, I sang in church. I started singing in church when I was five. Then about the fourth grade, maybe fifth grade, I was in a talent show at school and I sang and the bullying stopped. Hmm. So that was the first time that I realized, oh wait, I have a talent 
that rivals all of these other very popular things in the in the landscape. There's something that I do that's special and makes people want to be nice to me. So let me figure out how to do that more. So then sixth grade came and it was um, desegregation for the second time in America. So I was bused to a school that was about 30, 40 minutes from my house. And I really started to, and I was put in the accelerated classes. So while they were trying to mix us up, if you think about the disparity in education in the black schools versus the white schools, then you bring the black students together with the white students, and then you test them when they get to the school. Well, obviously the white students are going to be a little bit further along. So then there's a separation inside of the school. So it was segregated inside of the school, but for whatever reason, I passed the test that put me in classes with all the white people. So here I am, 11 years old. I'm one of maybe two, very often just one minority in a 30-person class. I didn't know what to do, but this was the year Reagan was elected. The government still cared about its people. There were lots of There were lots of programs that were still in place. You know, our government likes to call them entitlement programs. I like to call them, they saved my life programs. Because there was an after school, there were after school programs with a booklet about this thick, with pages front and back, filled with activities that you could do in these after school programs. Nobody left school. Nobody left school on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Or was it Tuesdays and Thursdays? One of it. There there were a couple of times a week where these after-school programs went for an hour and a half after school. So one of them, the the school was called Risenstein, and it was called Risenstein Musical Theater. And I didn't know what theater was, but I knew musical meant maybe I could Thing, and I was already playing the saxophone in the band. And so I went and Betsy Schmidt um, told us what a musical was. We were going to come back the following week and audition <laughs> with a song, sing a song in front of everybody, any song you want. Um, and then, the, and then the, it, the show would be cast. Every role would be double cast so that everybody would get something to do. There were literally hundreds of people, hundreds of people. So um, interestingly enough, and this is a story that a lot of people don't know. Interestingly enough, my grandma, it was my my birthday. It was September 21st. And my grandmother came with my great aunt to surprise me. They took me downtown Pittsburgh. We went to dinner. And then we went to Heinz Hall and the curtain opens and it's The Wings. Oh, wow. (laughs) Starring Lilius White. Oh, wow. She was Dorothy? Yeah. Okay. This was, you were in sixth grade. Yeah. Jasmine Guy was in the chorus. Oh, my. Adrian Bailey was in the chorus. I go back to the program years later. I'm like, oh, my God. So 
I'm like, oh shit, this is a musical, this is a musical. Oh my God, I want to sing Home. Like I was like apoplectic at this show, <laughs> you know? And so I go to school the next day and I tell the music teacher, Rhoda Arnold, she did the, she was, she was the, the vocal music teacher and then there was an instrumental music teacher and I was doing both. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, I saw this thing called The Wiz and I want to sing a song for my audition next week, but I don't know how to get the music. I don't, I, I don't know how to, like two days later, she had purchased, and this is for all you teachers out there, by the way, because the teachers in my life saved my life, saved my life. So this teacher went out and bought me the album. For those of you who are too young to know what that was. (laughs) And um, uh, the sheet music. And I came back the next week. I learned home from the Wiz. I sang home. The cast list went up. Everybody was double cast. The show was Babes in Arms. <laughs> and it said Gus Fielding, Billy Porter. Period. And I was like, wait, I don't have to share this part with anybody? I get to do all four performances? <laughs> <laughs> And it was like, but that was a, that was a ding, ding, ding. Oh shit. Like somebody thinks I'm good at something good enough to break the rules, good enough to break their own rules and make me the sole owner of this role. Like I, it, you know, it was, a, it was, it was major. And I had angels like that. You know, then then that same music teacher, you know, I had instrumental music teacher, so I played the saxophone and I was in the band and Mr. Lutz was my instrumental teacher. I'm still friends with him to this day. I'm still friends with him and his family, his children. Um, You know, he comes to see me in everything I do, everything I do. Every time I go back to Pittsburgh, I visit him and his family. Like he's he he and his family, came to New Jersey to visit my mother in the Actors Fund nursing home. Like, that's, that's what teachers are for me. So this music teacher knew that there was this program called All City Junior Choir. And it was a choir that rehearsed on Saturday mornings from 9 to 11.30. So I get into this choir, Bertie Nichols, black woman, stern, strong. I always loved them. She didn't take no shit. I loved her. I was in the soprano section. I sat in the soprano section. <laughs> I sang in the soprano section. The spring concert came around. She said, anybody who wants to sing a solo at the spring concert, stay after and sing a song for me. Or they said, bring a song next week and we'll do it. So I bring home my audition song, I sing home, 
She's like, that's what you're singing in the spring concert. And then she said to me in the seventh grade, so that was sixth grade, in the seventh grade, she said, okay, so there's this program, entitlement programs. I get really angry about this. There's a program that happens every Saturday from 12 to five called the Center for Musically Talented. It happened at the Creative and Performing Arts High School in Homewood, Brushton, which is, which is the hood, right? Dr. Harry Clark started a Creative and Performing Arts High School in 1979. So we were just two, three years into the high school. And it was only a half day high school. But on Saturdays, they had Center for Musically Talented, where I got um, private voice lesson, private saxophone lesson, opera workshop, choir class sight singing, soul sage, like everything, every Saturday, it was for high school kids. They let me in in the seventh grade. My Saturdays started at seven o'clock in the morning, waking up in my house, getting on public transportation, going to all city junior choir rehearsal from nine to 11.30, getting on a bus, going to the other side of town to get to the Center for Musically Talented, where I studied from 12 to 5 every week that school was in session. We can't make it without teachers. We can't make it without those people who care. I'm from the hood. I'm from the church. There was nobody in my sphere, nobody, who could understand or tell me what to do or where to go or how to dream beyond my circumstance. My circumstance on paper said, I'm going to be a statistic. I'm going to be a drug addict. I'm going to be in jail or I'm going to be dead. That's what the statistics say. Still to this day, for a person who looks like me and who comes from where I come from, and it was those people, I call them my angels. I'm writing my memoir right now. I call them my angels who stepped in at every moment. You know, then I go to an audition. I know you ain't asked me no question, but we're talking about- (laughs) No, I keep going. We're talking about teachers, so I'm gonna tell you about these teachers. So then I do this whole program. I get to the eighth grade. It's time for me to go to high school. I wanna go to the Creative and Performing Arts High School. My mother says, no, you're gonna go into computers. Now, for a woman who's from the hood who has a high school education, that was a really smart idea. Let me just say that. She was right. But she was wrong because she she didn't know she had you. (laughs) She didn't know, but she was right. So let me just say that. She said to me, you're going into computers. I snuck because it was a Saturday. So 
I was going to my other stuff. I didn't tell her that Centers for Musically Talented was canceled that week because they were having auditions for the high school. So I went to the same high school that I had been going to for two years on Saturday to audition for that high school. I auditioned, I got in on the spot, and I said, my mama's not gonna let me come. Dr. Harry Clark, the founder of the school and the principal of the school, stood up and said, what did you say, son? I said, my mom's not gonna let me come. He said, what's, what's your mom's name and number? Come with me. He took me to his office, called my mother on the phone, and she was over at the school in 20 minutes. He sat her down and he said, listen, I hear that you don't want your son to come here. I know that you're mad that he came to this audition and disobeyed you. Here's what I'm gonna say to you. Your child's talent is astounding. He has a focus. He wants to be in school. The very thing that you're trying to shield him from, which is the drugs, which is the gangs, which is all of that, will surely happen if you take this away from him. All of those things that you think you're protecting him from will surely happen if you don't let him do this. That's how talented he is. That's how dedicated he is at 13 years old. And please know, it's four years. It's four years of knowing that your child will be in school, in school that he likes, in school that he will thrive in. You know, because I had to go to another school for half a day for my, for my academics. And the deal was, your academics, if you keep up your academics, you can do anything you want. So who had a 3.75 average through school? That was the motivation, right? So I get to that school, I'm in the music program, I'm a voice major, ain't nobody doing no musical. Where are the musicals? I'm just singing in concerts, I'm singing Carmio Band, whatever the bull, the Italian song with the yellow book and the green. I'm like, yeah, 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 but where's the musical? I came here to be in musical. They ain't doing no musical. <laughs> no musical freshman year. This is when I started realizing the separation. 24 Italian hits, yes. I saw somebody just write it down. <laughs> so, um, so that first year there was no musical in the school. There was no school musical. But everything was also separate. So the music department was the music department. The drama department was the drama department. The, the, the art department was the art department and the dance department was the dance department and they were all separate and I hated it. And I was like, I don't understand what's happening here. Like, I, I wanna be in a musical. Second day of school, sophomore year. Um, what's that woman's name? 
I'll figure it out. The head of the, I've been working all day. The head of the um, drama department comes up to me and says, I hear you want to be in a musical. And I said, yeah. And she said, well, here's what I think you should do. I said, what do you think I should do? She said, well, I heard you sing last year in the concert. And I think you should be in musicals. Um, but I want to offer you the role of George, uh, uh, the, 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 the role of Mr. Webb in our town. We're doing our town. The drama department is doing our town. So here's what I want. Here's what I um, propose. You come to the drama department for a semester. You play Mr. Webb for me in our town. I'm like, what, the f- what is our town? <laughs> Peggy Hughes is her name. Is her name. Um, brash, you know, blonde, white woman, sassy, you know, creative, you know, like those people. Nobody knew that. Someone wrote that on the, on the chat. Somebody wrote what? Peggy Hughes. Peggy Hughes, yeah. So, Peggy Hughes, I said, okay. So I left the music department, crossed over, played Mr. Webb in our town. So I was on stage. I wasn't singing, but I was on stage. And I ended up staying in the drama department. And they had a musical theater arm. And junior year, Lenora Nimitz Uh, came back to Pittsburgh. And for those of you who don't know Lenora Nimitz, she's a Pittsburgh girl, uh, went to Broadway, done good. She was one of the first covers, standbys, for Gwen Burden and Cheetah Rivera in the first iteration of Chicago. So she had come back to Pittsburgh for whatever reason, and she was a guest, I guess guest teacher or guest, you know, whatever you call it. Bob is gonna love you, Bob is gonna love you. And she would pull me into rooms and she would teach me the choreography alone because there were only like six or seven students. And the school was very small, so there were only six or seven musical theater students. And, you know, she wanted to get me ready for Bob. <laughs> um, so senior year of high school, they caught wind, Peggy and Lenora caught wind, that I was going to New York. I was moving to New York after, after uh, graduation from high school, and I was going to be a Broadway star. That's the plan. Isn't that what you do? L- literally pulled me back here <laughs> into the office. And Peggy was like, you're not going to New York. You're going to Carnegie Mellon in the drama department. You can sing your ass off. You're the best singer I've ever heard. Your dancing is really, really great. You, you, you know, Lenora, it, it, your dancing is amazing. Every time you open up your mouth, it's a disaster. And I'm like, you need to learn how to act. I was like, Okay, great, but I'm not going to Carnegie Mellon. I'm not staying in Pittsburgh. If I'm going to college, I, first of all, I can't afford college. And she's like, you can afford college. There are loans and there are grants and there are scholarships. Also shit that doesn't exist anymore, by the way. Um, loans, you know, all that stuff. So that won't be a problem. Um, I will pay for your, you know, she said, I will pay for your fees 
your application fees. Um, and we will get your monologues and your songs together for your audition because she had mo- she was a moonlighting voice and speech teacher at Carnegie Mellon. Oh, wow. I which know. I didn't know. Here's what I'm saying, though. It's about access. It's about opportunity. It's about knowledge. I lived a 12-minute drive from Carnegie Mellon University for my entire life and had no idea that it was one of the best drama schools in the world. And now you're, uh, you're a spokesperson for Carnegie Mellon. <laughs> I mean, like, how did I not know that? Like, this is the shit I'm talking about. This is what we mean when we say it's not equal. It's not a level playing field. How the fuck am I doing all of this living in Pittsburgh? And the first time I hear about Carnegie Mellon is from a white woman. (laughs) I mean, I guess that's how it happens. You know, but like, had she not said something, I would have moved to New York City. Had she and Lenore not said something, I would have moved to New York City unprepared and tanked. It was because of teachers, the angels in my life, who saw me before I could even see myself and said, no, bitch, you're going over here. You're going over here. Just listen. Just shut up and listen. And I knew enough to actually shut up and listen. I mean, you have to also, you know, I will say the student also has to be open and listen. (laughs) You have to listen. I was like, well, these people know more than me. So if she's saying I should go to Carnegie Mellon, then I guess I should. (laughs) You know, I'll try it. And I ended up going to the audition. I had my little shit prepared, had my little stuff prepared. It was a weekend. And so they would have the auditions on Saturdays and Sundays. So I went on a Saturday early. They put you through a ballet class. Then you went to a room and you sang for a a vocal teacher. And then you went to an acting room and you did your monologues for an acting teacher. And as I was putting my stuff together, to, I went through all of that. As I was putting my stuff together to leave, this older gentleman comes over to me and says, can I speak to you for a minute? And I said, yeah, sure. He takes me into the instrumental room, the orchestra room that's filled with like timpanis and cellos and basses and, you know, flugelhorns horns and, you know. And he's like, so I was just, we were just wondering, um, you know, are you auditioning for any other schools? And at this point, I was auditioning for everything. I was, you know, because I was really trying to not stay in Pittsburgh. I was auditioning for everything. So I was like, yeah. And he said, well, what other schools? And I told him what the schools were. And he said, well, um, you know, what would it take to get you to come to Carnegie Mellon? And I was like, well, am I accepted? 
And he was like, yes, <laughs> but you can't say anything about that. But yes, that's between you and me. How can we get you to come here? I said, baby, whoever gives me the most money is where I'm going. Because I don't have shit. And he was like, got you. Let me figure out a package for you. Let, me fi- let, let us figure out, let us put together, uh, what do they call it? A financial aid package for you. And we'll have that to you by next week. And I said, great. And he said, and um, what are you doing for the rest of the day and tomorrow? And I said, nothing. And he's like, you want to make a little money? And I said, yeah, sure. He's like, we need some help running these auditions. <laughs> That's so random. (laughs) So I ended up running the auditions where Tammy Tappan showed up. Y'all don't know who Tammy Tappan is, but Gordon Greenberg knows who Tammy (laughs) Tappan is. Tammy Tappan shows up and I had been in this thing with her. um, What's that thing where they give you the, the, from the different schools and you, you. Like thespians? Yeah, it's like you win prizes, you win scholarship money and people from all over the country. And you used to go to Florida for like a week and they would do workshops and stuff. And I had met her there and she sang home. And she was a white girl who sang home. And then you were like, I'm up next. And, and, I'm mother- and well, and motherfuckers had me singing Maria <laughs> when I should have been singing home. <laughs> they had me singing Maria. This is before I knew what I should be doing on my own. Young Arts, yes, yeah, Young Arts, but it was called something else at the time. So it was Young Arts. So she came to the audition without music because she was going to. She was auditioning for the acting program because you know how they like to do us. You know <laughs> how they like to do us musical theater people. Musical theater people can't can't act. You but know, not they, musical theater at Carnegie Mellon is like medical school. I well, mean. that's what I was trying to tell her. I was like, no, you know, because I had all the information now. Because my teacher told me. <laughs> you were the monitor. You were it's the an charge. acting program. It's an acting program first. And then all the musical theater stuff is added on top of that. Blah, 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 blah. And she was like, well, I didn't bring any music. I said, what you need, girl? She said, well, I could sing, um, I could sing something from Evita. I got in my car, went, she drove to my house, got the music for Evita, brought it back to her. <laughs> I said, no, you're auditioning for musical theater. You need to be in the musical theater program. I don't know why you didn't bring your music. Always be prepared. Stay ready. Then you don't have to get ready. Here I am, 17 years old, literally like, bitch, why didn't you bring your music? Go get her music. She gets in. We're in the same class. I'm off topic, but I just had to say that. because Why don't they just happen. make you the president of Carnegie Mellon? They're like, <laughs> you have extra time? <laughs> That's hilarious. So I just spoke for 20 minutes, and you asked me one question. What's next? This is the perfect interview. I love it. It's the end of the day. Um, I love hearing you talk. We only have 15 minutes left, so I want to open it up to questions from the gang. Um, So uh, let's see. Peter Abondo says, you're both a performing artist and a vocal artist. What should we be doing as performing arts educators to tackle systemic prejudice and racism in our communities and institutions? The first thing that I think needs to happen is that all teachers must embrace and begin to understand all cultures. Everybody isn't the same. 
you know, one of the things that was not so great for us at Carnegie Mellon, for us Black kids and for us gay kids, is that there was no template as to how to move beyond the status quo. The status quo being white, generally European, with no room for cultural interpretation. I remember doing a Shakespeare play once I had graduated. I was doing um, Merchant of Venice and I was playing one of them Solanio Solario people. I don't remember which one. But, you know, there was a 400 year old joke that wasn't landing. And I fought with the director because I wasn't, it wasn't scanning. I wasn't doing the scansion properly. And I related myself to the material so that I could land the fucking joke. Who cares about the scansion at this point? What am I saying? This joke is 300 years old. It's not landing. And I'm the one with egg on my face. You don't have egg on your face. I'm the one with the egg on my face. So yeah, I went to my blackness and I pulled out something that got you your fucking laugh. And you're attacking me. It's like embrace where people come from. Embrace the totality of what everybody brings into the room. You might learn something. You might hear something different when it comes out of my mouth than you will when it comes out of somebody else's mouth. And it's not all the same. It's not standard. You know, there's a, there, there was, when I was going to school, there was a standard. You know, they beat it out of me. They beat my accent out of me. They beat my dialect out of me. So much so to the point where I didn't have anything left. I'm not saying that you don't teach standard American speech. Yes, but you don't teach it as a replacement for who you are. You teach it as an expansion to what you already have. Use who the people are and expand from that as opposed to trying to change people or replace something. Does that make sense? It makes sense to me. Yeah. And I think a lot of the questions that are popping up are all revolving around the same ideas, which is yeah. um, how can teachers help kids to feel included, queer kids, kids of color, uh, kids who don't look like or feel like or act like everybody else. Um, the other sort of branch of that is what would be your advice to ensure that young people are able to work in the most inclusive environment and able to present their truest selves to the class with confidence? Well, it comes from the top down. 
And anybody who's in America now knows what that feels like. Comes from the top down. You're the teacher. You make the, you make the room inclusive. You're the one. The teachers are the ones who create the safe space. You know, you're, we're the ones. You know, when I direct, you, you're the same way, Gordon. You know, when you direct, you create a space in a room that is open, engaging, inspiring, encouraging. Create the space that you want. I should say just a public thank you to Billy because he's really the reason I have a directing career. Um, he was in the first show I directed. And uh, thanks to his agent and now manager, Bill Butler, yes. um, I got John Bazzetti as my first agent from Gersh. But it was a production of Jesus Christ Superstar where Billy played Jesus uh, opposite Emily Skinner and Drew Sarich, who now lives in Vienna. Um, but the whole thing was set in apartheid era South Africa uh, and all new arrangements by Stephen O'Remus and Billy, basically. And that's, and that's when I was thinking, you know, that was before the acid reflux. That <laughs> that, was you were still in the soprano section. Yeah, that's back when I was still in the soprano section, singing. So I, miss, I, I see that sometimes and I miss my old voice. <laughs> oh, but your voice now is so... But my new voice is, you know, I've leaned into it. I'm cool with it. Oh, but my old voice could do anything. My, my <laughs> old voice of mine. Baby, I'm glad there's, I'm glad there's proof. I'm glad <laughs> there's recording. <laughs> it was gorgeous, but it's still gorgeous. That's all I have to say. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we're going to welcome one or two people on screen to ask you okay. a question live. That's okay. Yeah, please. Jared, um, it looks like Jared... Guillory, is that you, Jared? I'm promoting you to a panelist. They're going to pop up in a second. And when you see your face, Jared, or when you see that you're coming up, press unmute and start video. Honey, we getting it down these days with the Zoom. They're not going to be able to get me out the house. It all, it all has to do with like where it's raining because there was like a thunderstorm here and everything slowed down. And sorry, then sorry. Oh, here's Jared. Jared. Jared, you had to go through a lot turn of- on your, Turn on your video. What is going on? <laughs> Sorry, girl. Hold on. I can't see you. <laughs> Sorry, it's girl. on the lower left. That little- Got it. No, it pops up finally. Hi. on your face. I know you know better than that. No, <laughs> I'm, teasing. Well. I'm teasing. I'm a little under the weather, so chilling in bed at the moment, but- um, as an LGBTQ person, how important was the role of Pray Tell to you? And how important do you think it is to the rest of the LGBT community, especially as a person of color? Well, I will say this. Representation is everything, right? Right. I really didn't have much. You know, growing up in the 80s, I didn't have much representation. And the representation that did exist was white. Right. So the first time I ever saw an image of myself was when I was in Greece, prancing around like a little Richard Automaton on crack. <laughs> and I have a very interesting, complicated relationship with that time, right? Because yeah. while it exposed me to a larger audience, 
it also pigeonholed me to such an effect that it took me 20 years to come out of that. Yeah. That's a whole different story. With that said, I went around the corner to see Angels in America by myself. And I saw Jeffrey Wright in the character of Belize. And I sat in that theater for 20 minutes after it emptied, weeping. Yeah. Going, everybody thinks I'm a clown. Nobody will ever see me like that. That is who I am. That is the character that, that's the person I am. I'm a whole person. I'm a whole human being. How do I make that happen? Like, it was like, And that's sort of what started the journey of planted the seeds of the fruits that you're seeing in my life right now, you know, because I saw that there was a space, there was an opening, there was a void that needed to be filled. I knew in my heart and my soul that everybody telling me that my queerness was my liability. From my family, to my church, to my, to, to my teachers at Carnegie Mellon, to the business, to everything and everybody. You're a faggot, you need to butch up, you need to fix it. That's the only messaging that I ever heard. Yeah, same. I made the choice to say fuck that. The only thing I can be is myself. And if that means I am nothing, if that means that nothing happens for me, at least I have me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it was, it, it was a combination of that. Mm-hmm. It was a combination of my first record deal, my R&B record deal <clears throat> imploding in on itself. And I thought, wow, I have failed as somebody else. I was doing what other people told me to do and I, and it's a failure. I didn't even do what I wanted to do. This album, as great as it is, is not a representation of me. It's me trying to be masculine enough to eat. It's easy to be who you are when what you are is what's popular. I say that all the time. It was not popular. One of the last jobs I had for a decade was the one that that Gordon Greenberg gave me, which was Jesus and Jesus Christ Superstar. Nobody was casting me in anything unless I came in to stop their show and scream like a banshee and then go back to your dressing room and shut the fuck up. Yeah. We don't want your story. We don't want to hear about you. You know, so I made the decision to choose myself and to fill the void. If that was ever possible, I never dreamed that it would, that it would look like... I never dreamed that it would look like Pray Tell. Yeah. I never dreamed that it could. We had no context to dream like that. 
You know, I say it all the time. It's like the show, Ryan Murphy, Stephen Canals, this moment in space and time in general in the world has taught me to dream the impossible. And if there's one thing that I can say to you teachers, teach your children to dream the impossible, to dream what they do not see in front of them. Dream beyond what you see. It can happen. I am living proof of that. I am living proof of dreaming beyond my circumstance, dreaming the impossible, and the dreams get bigger and bigger every single day. Don't stop dreaming. Billy, this has been amazing. It's and it's gone like this. Um, I wish we Let's could have one more question. We could spend another three hours, <laughs> but we got to go. One last question. Yep. You want? Oh, all right. Let's take one more. So this last one is Amisha Gross. I think you will be zapped onto the screen. Let's see. Amisha. So once you appear, unmute yourself, start your video. There she is. Hi, Amisha. Hi, it's Amisha. 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 Yeah. It's all good. That's all right. Um, first of all, it's a pleasure and honor to meet you and hear your story. Um, I am a teacher, but I'm also a director, and I also have a daughter who is very passionate about the arts. So my question is simply, um, she's 20 years old, and all of the things that you're saying about the lack of opportunities and access and programming, I mean, that happened when we were coming up and going to college, how or what kind of advice would you give her about trying to get in a place where she is able to be who she is? She's very good at bringing herself to the table, but how does she get a seat at the table now? And I um, think that that's the biggest hurdle you're talking about finance can relate yeah. you're talking about all of that so just yeah george c wolf one of my mentors said to me when i was in my valley and in the lowest part that i had ever been sleeping on people's sofas driving my car from new york to pittsburgh for six hours when I didn't have a place to stay so I could go home and stay with my friends until I could find another place. You know, it was bankruptcy, all the whole thing. Mm -hmm. He said, do you want to be an artist or do you want to be a star? Those things are two separate things. That's the first thing. Define what your artistry means to you right, as an artist. Mm -hmm. And then, never wait for anybody to give you permission to practice it. Be practicing your art, whatever it is, all the time. You will have to 
do odd jobs. You will have to engage in things that you don't want to engage in. But as long as you're always finding space for your art, you will always be ready in the moment that you're supposed to be. I'll share, I'll share this Angels in America story with you because it connects to, I saw that Angels in America, it changed my life. It set me on this trajectory. I jumped off the ledge. I spent a decade in the abyss, a decade. What it did for me though, was made me look inward, look at myself and go, How, what am I waiting for? Why am I giving all of my power away? So I went to UCLA and started writing and I started directing and I started finding all of these other spaces where I could vibrate create creatively because I'm a creative person. I'm an artist. It doesn't matter if I'm on the stage or not. It doesn't matter if I'm in the spotlight or not. That's ego. What matters is my art. What matters is that I'm practicing this thing that saved my life, that gives me so much joy. Like, let me just keep doing that, right? I was watching Oprah 20 years ago and she had Ayala Van Sant and, uh, and Maya Angelou on and they were talking about service. And they said, when you shift your focus to service, everything else will work itself out. Right. And I thought, how, am I, how can I be of service? in a world and in an industry that's inherently narcissistic and it hit me like a ton of bricks. It's your queerness. It's the very thing that everybody's telling you not to be. That is your service, right? So I'm in the valley. I'm doing my work. 2010, I haven't been in New York City doing theater for 10 years. They announce the off-Broadway revival of Angels in America. <laughs> Nobody wants to see me. It's still the same old bullshit. He can't act. You know, grease, 14 inches of orange rubber hair. He does that. Right. I sat in the fullness of my truth, said, good luck doing this without me. That's what I said to myself. That's what I knew in my spirit. I knew it. I'm at the gym. I'm going to the gym different times because I'm an artist. So I'm not at the gym at the same time. Three weeks in a row. Every time I'm at the gym, I run into Tony Kushner the writer of Angels in America, for those of you who don't know. And I had known him from other things. Finally, after three weeks of seeing him, random, at random times at the gym, I'm not following him, random times at the gym. And they have been seeing Belize's for months in New York. Finally, he says to me, what? In the locker room, naked, are you? Have you, have you been called yet? Nope. You haven't been called for your audition yet? Nope. Okay. Went on about my business. 
The next day I get a call from my manager. Mad. They want to see you tomorrow. I tried to get them to push it. They want you to do three scenes. And, they get, and he was mad. I said, stop. I have to stop you. There is one role in the entire canon of everything, anything that has ever existed on the planet, there's one role that looks like me. If I don't already know it, it's my fault. You can trust and believe I know every fucking word of this play. What scenes? What scenes? Give me the scenes. If you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. I already knew it. Mm -hmm. I had all three scenes in my head from the last 20 years of working on it. <laughs> I walk into the room. I know it's a courtesy audition. I open up my mouth to speak to a room full of people who I know think I can't act, right? Right. The awareness of understanding what's around you and knowing what you must do to change it. It's okay. Why would you know? Mm -hmm. Why would you know? So I'm going to show y'all. So I open up my mouth and I see them lean in. You know, one person leans in and another person leans in. And our Later, an hour, there were people waiting outside to audition for this play. An hour later, Tony Kushner gets up from the table with tears streaming down his face, gives me a bear hug and says, you were the voice I heard in my head when I wrote this play. Mm. That was what the la all that time in the valley was about. And then did they ask you to stay and run the auditions? <laughs> <laughs> um, Billy, we gotta Thank stop here. For that. Just keep working. <laughs> Thank you so much. Just keep Thank working. You. Yeah, absolutely. Alicia, thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Broadway Teachers Podcast, recorded live at the Broadway Teachers Workshop, an annual program that brings theater teachers together with the Broadway community for behind-the-scenes classes, workshops, intimate discussions, and Broadway shows in New York City and online. Learn more at www.broadwayteachinggroup.com. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.